Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the latest tactical updates from Ukraine, look at what the strength of the Russian ruble tells us about the economy, and finally, we examine what lessons the Nuremberg trials may have for the war in Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's April 14th, day 50. And today I'm joined by assistant comment editor Francis Sternley, economics reporter Louis Ashworth, and Daniel Kapura, senior reporter and history correspondent at The Telegraph. Dominic Nichols is away. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from the Black Sea. Yes, well, sometimes the metaphors write themselves. This ship will be familiar to many of our listeners who've been following us since the beginning of the conflict, for it was this ship which was the one that attacked uh, Snake Island, which was uh, where those brave Ukrainian soldiers were stationed. And they famously sent a defiant message um, when the Moskva tried to uh, take the island and get them to surrender. And uh, they were all of those Ukrainian soldiers were initially believed killed, um, but now we know were actually all captured. Um, But the significance of this strategically is that this, as you say, is the Black Sea flagship and it has been a thorn in the side of the Ukrainian uh, forces ever since it was stationed there. Not only does it provide military support for um, troops on the ground, but also it's a consistent threat, which means that it needs to be, uh, you need to have soldiers and defences present nearby in case it, you know, it goes on to manoeuvres and begins to attack. So it, 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 it saps resources, even if it's, you know, just stationed outside of um, of a port. But what's occurred, as you say, is a we believe it was struck by two Ukrainian missiles. That's certainly what the Ukrainians are claiming. Um, and initially, we heard that it had been sunk. We now believe that that is not the case, that the ship was in serious risk of being sunk, but um, has since been uh, righted enough that uh, um, it, it's being sort of dragged back to port by the Russian uh, Russian Navy. Um 
But as I say, it's, it's symbolic. I think its main significance is that this will be seen as a sort of poetic justice, that this was one of the very first incidents of the war was involved in this ship, and now it has become emblematic of the uh, nature of the, the shifting character of this conflict, that as the Ukrainians have grown stronger, now they have been able to strike one of the most significant uh, ships in the in the Russian Navy. So um, a, an important moment on, on both the strategic level, but also the symbolic one. And the siege in Mariupol is continuing. What's the latest there? Yes, well, yesterday we were reporting that we expected Mariupol to, to fall imminently. And that may well be the case, but there are still a group of Ukrainian fighters, we understand, that are regrouping for a last stand in that city. Um, of course, we've talked before about the, the scale of the devastation that appears to have been uh, wrought by the Russian siege, perhaps as many as 10,000 deaths there, according to the mayor of that city. Um, but at present, we believe that there are fighters from the 36th Marine Brigade of the Ukrainians who've joined the Azov Battalion, which we spoke about yesterday, and they are intending on on fighting and, and holding the city for as long as possible. The strategic significance of this is just worth underlining, um, as, as we were making yesterday, the point yesterday, if Mariupol is taken, it will enable Moscow to complete a land bridge for troops and supplies between Russia and Crimea. So that is why this is being so so viciously fought over is it has huge strategic significance as a as a city um on the on the um on the battlefront and so both sides are very very keen to to seize control of it before we bring in louis to talk um about some of the economic aspects of this i just want to touch on a story which we've talked about before where um emmanuel macron the other day uh, rejected Joe Biden's uh, words that this this is a genocide, and he described Ukrainians and Russians as uh, uh, brothers. And Ukraine have hit out at that. What what's happened, and what does that show us? Well, yes, you, Emmanuel Macron obviously is on the campaign trail at present, and previously was trying to essentially uh, big up his role as uh, one of the. Europe's leaders on the issue of Ukraine, you'll recall that he was one of the only leaders to be engaging with Putin before and, and during the conflict in an attempt to, to first stop the invasion and second then to try and understand uh, what Putin was willing to, what, what his objectives were. Depending on who you ask, that was either a very naive strategy or it was a successful one in an electoral sense. I told you that when I was in Paris last week, I was very struck by how many French commentators seemed to think that this was um, a good strategy by Emmanuel Macron in terms of showing that France is not a second rate power in Europe, but in fact can, can be one of the chief architects of a sort of geopolitical strategy. Um, but as I say, other commentators have taken a different view. But to the, the point at hand, as you say, he uh, a very curious expression yesterday uh, essentially seemed to repeat one of the Kremlin propaganda lines that Ukrainians and Russians were were brothers um, and rejected the description of the war as a genocide. We spoke yesterday about the difficulties in defining that word. Um, so I'm not going to get into that again today. But obviously, the Ukrainians are very upset about this, not least because they are saying, you know, how on earth? And I'm quoting here from the spokesman of the Ukrainian foreign ministry. He says that, 
quote, Russian leadership and criminal actions of the Russian military is disappointing to be you know, um, s- supported or, or, or unwillingness to, to criticise them by Macron. The, he continues, brotherly people don't kill children, don't shoot civilians, don't rape women, don't mutilate the elderly and don't destroy the homes of other brotherly people. So a very strong defiance there from, from the Ukrainian foreign ministry. And again, it speaks to some of the tensions within Europe Um, about exactly how to proceed and how to define this conflict. Thank you very much, Francis. Uh, Louis Ashworth, our economics reporter. I've got notes in front of me which say the Russian ruble weakened on Thursday driven by expectations that Russia may relax its temporary capital control measures further. Can you you dig into that a little bit and explain to people who maybe aren't across the economics and, um, and that sort of thing? What does that mean and what does this show us about the Russian economy? Hi, David. Thank you. Sure. So... I think the important thing here is to take a little bit of a step back because Russia has found itself at at a junction. So if you recall when the war first began, what the West immediately did was unleash a huge package of uh, financial measures against against Russia. It was basically utilising the strength of the dollar to wage war on, on financial terms against the country, which is something that we haven't really had such a clear precedent for before. So there were sanctions, there were various freezes. One of the most notable things was that the West made steps to cut off Russia's access to foreign currency reserves that it had had, over, had overseas. Um, what this did was devastate the ruble, uh, Russia's currency. So we saw the ruble uh, plunge in the early days of the conflict. Um, it hit a record low of uh, 110, uh, 110 rubles to the dollar, uh, in early March, and uh, it was it, sort of a, a devastation to a currency, uh, and, and fascinating in terms of uh, the power that countries can wield when they cohesively act on financial measures. Um, at the time, President Biden uh, quipped that they'd reduced the ruble to rubble. Now, what Russia had to do then was take immediate action to try and support support the ruble. It's it's an interesting question as to how necessary this ne- this, this was at that point. Uh, Russia, as an exporter, benefits from the ruble being weak actually because it's uh, it makes it um, it makes their exports more desirable. But the Kremlin you know, saw the devastation that was occurring and decided to take steps. So probably the two most notable things that occurred here were the introduction of uh, of capital controls that you referred to there. So capital controls is a very it's a very broad term. It basically refers to any step that a government can take to uh, stop um, to stop outflows of its own currency. So in this instance, uh, what uh, Moscow did was it ordered Russian companies that were export focused to sell their sell their foreign exchange revenues into the local market, meaning that whenever uh, whenever you had a Russian exporter making money overseas, it was then coming back, buying rubles, and that was supporting the ruble. Uh, the other thing that it did was um, hike interest rates. Uh, so you know, obviously we've seen a similar thing occurring in, in Britain lately when a central bank hikes interest rates on its currency. It typically strengthens that currency because it makes it more lucrative to hold the currency as, a, as an investor. Um, the reason that this has been able to work is because uh, Gazprom and Rosneft, two of the big energy companies, have basically been like cash machines for Russia over the, over the past uh, seven weeks of, of the conflict. The amount that they are bringing in is about uh, about a, a billion euros a day. Uh, that has offered tremendous support to the ruble uh, because that that money is coming coming into Russia, uh, being exchanged for rubles and therefore supporting the rubles the rubles rate. So after that 
initial plunge that we saw in, in the early days of the conflict, the ruble steadily re rebuilt its strength, and uh, early last week, it returned to its uh, its pre-invasion level, which is quite remarkable. Uh, at the time, Russia's finance minister said, uh, the nadir of Russia's economy has passed, and the ruble has become a strong currency. So what Russia's been talking about today is the prospect of beginning to wind down some of those capital controls to make it so that uh, there's a bit more flexibility in how its companies handle the currency they've made overseas. The effect of that will likely be that the ruble weakens slightly, uh, perhaps not devastatingly. It, it will take away some of that support that has been had from having those companies buy rubles. So that's why we've seen this slight downwards move in the ruble today. Not in the scale of the, of the movements we've seen during this conflict, not, not a major move, but a reflection of a, an expectation that uh, there'll be some ruble weakness as a result of that. So I guess the question now is where that leaves us. So on a symbolic level, uh, it's very interesting because uh, as, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, the collapse of the ruble was was hailed as a sign of the effect of Western sanctions. Um, you had again you had the, the, the President Biden ruble rubble quip, uh, but now the ruble's back where it was. Uh, so on the surface, that might make it appear that Western sanctions haven't worked, but it doesn't mean that everything is well and good in Russia. So first of all, even the level that the ruble is at now, which is back where it was before before the invasion, is still significantly weaker than it has been in, in recent months, and it's not re and it's no longer reflecting the strength that it should have as a result of high oil prices. But also, the purchasing power of the ruble has been really devastated. So we've seen that inflation in Russia is extremely high. It's uh, according to the central bank, it's at about seventeen point five percent, which is the highest it's been since two thousand two. So as a result, everything is more expensive. Uh, and and if you are in Russia, you have rubles, and you're trying to buy things in rubles. Your rubles are buying far less than they used to. You know, to, to the effect, very very. This is very, very rough maths, but you get about a fifth less for, for your ruble than you would have done a year ago. Um, that's, a very that's a dangerous situation. And we've seen, we've seen in, in countries what the impact of, uh, of high inflation can do. It's, it, you know, it, it destroys living standards and it can lead to unrest. So there's a lot of open questions on that end as to what's going to happen. Um, on top of that, uh, the effects of foreign sanctions are going to continue to mean that goods become more expensive in Russia as a result of reduced choice because fewer companies are exporting into Russia. Um, and also, again, that, that weakening of purchasing power um, is, is, is inflationary. So it's, it's an interesting sim symbolic move. And it's going to be interesting to see what Russia does from here, particularly because... Uh, Having taken, in, having taken interest rates so high in order to support the ruble, it now faces the prospect that it has to relaunch its economy, which, let's not forget, is almost certainly, almost certainly taken a heavy recessionary-level hit from all these sanctions, whilst also having high interest rates. Now, what high interest rates do is they make borrowing more expensive, and in general, that hurts, that hurts investment, that hurts business activity, that slows down your economy. So it's something you need to do often to stop inflation, but it doesn't marry well with having to launch an economic recovery. So there's big questions facing Moscow right now, and and they uh, the problems go deeper than an apparent recovery in the ruble would indicate. Thank you very much, Louis. That was that was fascinating, and I think exactly what we needed to understand and unpack some of the news today. Just want to ask you one more thing before we bring in Daniel Kapuro. Um, Russian President Vladimir Putin told the Austrian Chancellor uh, when they met this week that Austria's supply of gas from Russia is safe. Um, how much should we read into this? And does this, what does this tell us about the, the greater 
um, uh, moves here of European nations saying that they're going to try and start weaning themselves off Russian hydrocarbons. I think the big problem that we have really with energy is you have to remember that all the European leaders are having to speak to basically two two audiences at the same time. They have to speak out to to Russia. There there have been attempts to show a united front. Uh, There are the the foreign policy imperatives that they face. But also they have their own domestic constituencies and in particular uh, sort of the, the business lobbies. Um, you know, b- businesses don't necessarily have the time to think about things in terms of what are they going to do uh, a year from now with an adjustment to where energy comes from. So taking you know, Austria as the example here, Austria is, is, a, is a very important country in this discussion the EU was having about its energy future um, because it is one of the most reliant on, on Russian gas. So Austria imports 80% of its gas from Russia, so hugely dependent. Um, it has been outspoken in rejecting sanctions. Uh, we saw that it's it's basically it's, it's ruled out any sort of immediate ban on fuel imports from from Russia into the EU. Um, and we've seen we've seen uh, Austrian businesses as well warning that they would really struggle to cope with the impact from some kind of uh, suddenly introduced embargo. Um, Situation is very similar in Germany. Uh, Germany, Germany's uh, business lobby, obviously hugely powerful, has also said if you cut us off from Russian oil and gas, we we are going to be in, in in all sorts of trouble. And and you have to remember that this is coming on top of far from a normal economic situation anyway. I mean, there are all kinds of pressures all over the economy that are causing uh, input prices to soar for for businesses, particularly manufacturing businesses, and. Uh, I think it's it's very credible, actually, the the response from from businesses saying that they can't afford this extra hit. So, I think I think what what uh, what Austria's um, president is saying here is is an attempt to reassure his 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 own business groups and reassure that constituency that he is going to be fighting their corner. Um, and I think we can see how that speaks more widely to the problems that the EU is going to have if it attempts to. Uh, bring about any kind of unilateral embargo or ban on Russian or uh, Russian oil and gas it's extremely politically difficult for several European leaders and um, and uh, not not a not a talk that a lot of them want to have with their with 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 their with the businesses in their countries just picking up on one thing that Louis said there um, we've spoken many times and of course much of the central commentary has been about Germany and its dependency on Russia. But it is worth underlining that there are many other countries in Europe that are not Eastern European countries, so former Soviet countries, that are also dependent. Very strikingly, Italy is never spoken about in relation to its dependence on Russia. But actually, statistically, I think it's still around the 40% mark in terms of its reliance on on Russian um, oil and gas. So, um, it is not just a German problem. Um, it is not just a sort of a French problem, which sometimes is spoken about as well, although the French have nuclear power plants. Italy is also really, uh, in a sense, if guilty, if that's the right word, of, 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 of similar issues. And yet you don't see them getting the same I suppose, public criticism. I think perhaps, of course, part of that is due to the relative weakness of their economy when compared with, with, with a France or a Germany. But even so, I think it's worthy of, of comment that, that, that it is not just a problem unique to those two two countries. It is something that, that goes much wider. And as I say, Italy is, is, is somewhere which I think actually probably requires a little bit more focus um, on, this, on, on this issue. Thanks very much, Francis. And thank you, Louis. Let's, let's 
park the economic discussion for the moment and bring in Daniel Capuro, um, senior reporter and history correspondent at The Telegraph. Daniel, we've seen over the past few weeks well, since the beginning of the conflict um, so much death and destruction, um, so, ma- so many deaths of, of, of civilians. There's also been huge destruction of Ukrainian heritage. Um, you've been looking at this. W- what have you found? Yes, it's interesting. I mean, you've got a the first thing to, to note is that obviously we're in a different phase of the war now. And, and in the early weeks of the war, there was this genuine fear that uh, Kiev would fall very rapidly. Um, perhaps Odessa would face um, assault from the Black Sea, an amphibious assault. And then there were questions about uh, Lviv in the far west as well, how long that could stay a safe haven. Um, those really are the three uh, sort of uh, cultural jewels in Ukraine, if you like. Um, Lviv, a sort of former Polish city, um, really quite beautiful place. That's where we've seen these famous images of, of sandbags being stacked up around statues and, and um, uh, cathedrals being being uh, boarded up. Um, that threat, to an extent, has receded. Um, when I spoke to people working at, you know, the Odessa Fine Arts Museum, the, the Kiev National uh, Museum, um, when they really thought the Russians were at the door, they were um, taking as many artifacts as they could off the walls, uh, putting them in uh, sort of undisclosed locations, in basements, in, in secure places. They didn't want to say where because obviously there's a huge fear of looting. Um, that in itself is not necessarily a good thing. Um, a lot of these items need to be preserved in, in uh, sort of climate controlled conditions. And there's only so much time they can spend in, in sort of damp uh, basements um, before they start to deteriorate. Um, it's unclear at the moment whether they whether any of the items have, have been uh, either evacuated from Ukraine. Um, at the time, it seemed quite difficult to do that, so they weren't. But perhaps some of them have been evacuated. That that's something they wouldn't. Uh, they're unlikely to ever disclose. Um, or if you know, in sort of cities like uh, Lviv, they might be returned to the museums. Um, the thing to bear in mind, obviously, is the immediate threat um, of uh, Russian troops and artillery has receded um, from those cities. But there's always the risk of. Uh, missiles um, raining down. Um, we've seen Russian willingness to strike um, civilian targets um, and targets of, of symbolic but not military value. Um, and a lot of museums in Ukraine are obviously quite old. Uh, one um, one curator was explaining to me that uh, just before the invasion, the Ukrainian government had actually put in place a plan to modernize museums, put in new fire suppression systems. Those obviously haven't been put in because the war began. And so um, the way one curator put it to me was once they start burning, that'll be it. It'll be gone. Um, so so that, that risk remains. You've then got the other side of the country. You've got uh, Kharkiv, which, of course, was the capital of uh, Ukraine in the early Soviet period, um, the Ukrainian um, Soviet uh, up until the mid-1930s, um, Ukraine's second largest city. Um, it, too, has very important museums. Um, it has a great collection of, of important historic items, for example, from the Scythians, who are the sort of famous um, steps people. Um, we really don't know uh, what's happened to that stuff. Um, unlike Kiev and, and Odessa, where they sort of had time to prepare um, to move as many objects as they could to safety, uh, it seems very unlikely that they were able to do that in, in Kharkiv. And, and the same is true of Mariupol, where uh, Russian troops arrived very, very quickly. Um, there was almost certainly very little time to protect um, not only the the objects themselves, but the historic buildings in which they're housed. Um, and so what we may find, a bit like we've seen in, in Butcher and Bodiranka and places where once the Russian troops were cleared out, um, you begin to see uh, evidence of war crimes, the bodies showing up, the mass graves. It may be that um, if and when Kharkiv is, the siege of Kharkiv is finally lifted, if and when Mariupol is, is liberated, um, we may find that a huge... Uh, amounts of cultural heritage have, have, um, have been destroyed. 
and, and disappeared. Um, and I think the other important thing to note here, and this is one of the fears kind of expressed to me by people working in the Department of Culture in Kiev and, and, and curators across the country, is that um, we saw in um, Vladimir Putin's speeches, in his uh, long historical essay, that he really denies the existence of um, Ukraine as, a, as a, an independent nation, as an independent people. And it's art and culture that, that gives lie to that claim, you know, that shows that actually... Um, there is a Ukrainian culture, there is a Ukrainian history. You know, Odessa is, is this really important city, not only in Ukrainian history, but in Soviet history with the, with the, um, with the mutiny on the Potemkin. And it's an important um, imperial uh, Russian city. Um, you know, you look at Mariupol, where they have a, a museum to the Greek diaspora. Um, you know, the Greek government's been making efforts to try and evacuate uh, Greek civilians there. Um, it's culture that kind of proves that Vladimir Putin's bizarre idea of a Russian world isn't, isn't real. Um, and of course, because of that, there's an incentive to go out and destroy um, that culture, to destroy evidence that Ukraine has, you know, Ukrainian people, Ukrainian culture has existed for centuries. Thanks, Daniel. You said you, you've been talking to lots of um, museum workers and archivists, etc., uh, across the country. What kind of things are they telling you? I mean, what's, that, what's their experience of, of, of war? Are they being dragged into help to other things or are, are they just focusing on their collections? Well, I think that the, um, you know, going back to what I just said, the, the Ukrainian government fully understands the importance of protecting its culture and protecting its, its cultural heritage. Um, you know, in, in standing up to the Russian invasion and standing up to these Russian lies about whether Ukrainian people exist. And so actually there has been a lot of effort put into um, protecting these uh, these objects. At the same time, um, the people working in these museums are, are human, just like the rest of us, and they have very difficult decisions to make. Uh, one of the, I spoke to the acting director of the Odessa Fine Arts Museum. Um, that's one of these museums where the paintings have been hidden away. They've put up barbed wire and, and sandbags to kind of to keep out looters and protect the building. And when I spoke to her, she was in Bulgaria because she um, has a young child and she felt that uh, it wasn't safe for them to remain in Odessa. And so she faced this sort of horrible choice of, of staying and protecting the history and culture of her, of her city and her region and her country um, and the safety of her own family. Um, and I don't think any of us would would judge her for the decision that she's made by by fleeing but that's kind of another another element that that um people are being forced to choose before we move on to the historical part of this of this discussion this podcast um francis and louis do you have any thoughts on that anything you want to ask daniel um i just one thing i would just comment on based on what uh, daniel was saying cultural sacking of artworks is something that's often associated with the nazis during world war ii um, and it has been obviously a something that has gone on in war in Europe since long before that. Um, quite strikingly, uh, the Louvre in Paris was originally meant to be filled with all of the artwork of Europe in the Napoleonic Empire. And before that, there are numerous examples of, of, of historic sites that, that were, you know, sacked, taken over and filled with foreign objects as as I say, part of part of this uh, an accepted accepted part of warfare. I think Venice, only four percent of the artwork that used to be in Venice in the 18th century is still there, and that, of course, was partly due to the defeat of um, of Venice as an independent state by Napoleon in 1796, 
And uh, as a consequence of that, you know, a lot of its art was taken away, sold very cheaply or, or stripped bare. So I just wanted to mention that as being a, a casualty of war. But as I say, um, it's mostly associated in the 20th century with the Nazis, but actually the Soviets were just as guilty of this. And I was very struck that when I went to Berlin a few years ago, if you go to some of the major museums, to this day, many of them are missing some of the things that were in their collections um, in the 1940s and before, and they print catalogues that you can be given, and they're on display in Russian, saying, you know, effectively, if you see these in your country, um, let us know. And it's believed that many of them are probably in the storage facilities of the Hermitage, being the main museum in St. Petersburg, um, but will never see the light of day because, of course, they don't want to admit um, that uh, that they have these these artworks. So I just wanted to mention that that this is unfortunately something that is is not just a, a uh, something that belongs in the past. The Soviets, unfortunately, and, and the and the uh, and the Russians have 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 got have a past history of doing this. But I think that there's there's an important distinction to be made here, um, and that's the distinction between looting and taking things home, which which will almost certainly be happening in this war. And, and what we'll probably see, as we saw in Syria and Iraq, is eBay being flooded with kind of antiquities selling for, you know, 20, 30 quid, um, you know, and kind of being snuck into Britain and other places. But, but I think the bigger concern of, of the Ukrainian people is, is more than that, is, is the deliberate destruction of, this, of these cultural artifacts. And I think there the Soviet comparison is more apt than, say, the Napoleonic one, because, the, you know, the Louvre was built to house these things. I think a better comparison is, is for example, if you visit Georgia and the Caucasus and you go into these uh, historic uh, churches, um, the uh, the frescoes, you know, uh, 1,600-year-old frescoes were whitewashed and obliterated um, by the Soviets in, in the 30s, 40s, 50s, um, partly uh, to crack down on religion, but also to deliberately crack down on, on, on Georgian uh, nationalism and, and Georgian kind of national identity. And I think that that more than anything is, is, is one of the big fears that, that the Ukrainian um, people working in the Ukrainian cultural sector fear. Thanks, Daniel. Um- Moving, to, we're talking a bit more about history. Obviously, one of the big subjects, um, one of the big topics we, we, we address almost every day on this podcast is the question of war crimes. You've written a fascinating article about how historic war crime tribunals have shown that tyrants like Putin can be brought to justice. Can you tell us a little bit about that? What do you mean? What, what have you What have you learned? Yes, yeah, so I think there's um, there's a couple of things going on there. Um, the main one is um, how how do we get to Putin? Um, you know, you look historically at uh, war crimes, you know, the idea that we have, the idea that there are laws of war goes back a very long time to, to sort of um, St. Augustine and, you know, what's Christian and moral. But those things were only ever enforced by um, leaders in the field, by generals. You know, Oliver Cromwell punished some of his troops for, for pillaging, as it was known at the time. But the modern idea that we have of um, crimes against humanity, um, war crimes, um, these kind of things only really was crystallized after the Second World War at, at Nuremberg, which effectively created international law, um, you know, out of thin air. Um, it was kind of a, a, this brand new thing that had never been done before, set a lot of precedents. Um, I was talking to Philippe Sands, the, um, the professor and, and um, uh, barrister of human rights, and he said the interesting thing is that what came out of Nuremberg was obviously genocide, and that's a word that, you know, we've discussed at length um, is being discussed a lot by um, presidents and prime ministers, but actually the the big kind of crime that stood at the top of it, the top of the pyramid, was the crime of aggression, uh, which the jurists um, at the Nuremberg trials uh, dubbed the universal crime. Um, and the reason that matters is that 
you're seeing now in places like Butcher this kind of forensic uh, detailing of of every um, body, of how they were died, where, how they died, where they were found, gunshot wounds, bound hands, all these kind of things. And you know, it's not it's not uh, that different from a normal uh, murder investigation of someone who has been shot. You've really got to prove um, what happened, who did it, who was there, everything else. Taking that and then tying it to Putin. Um, and other higher-ups, higher uh, Shogu, the, the um, Secretary of Defense, is incredibly difficult um, because unless you're like uh, the Nazis in Germany who are obsessed with bureaucracy, uh, you're very, very unlikely to be able to find um, a link, you know, a command, an order from uh, Vladimir Putin saying, kill civilians, do this, do that. Um, and this is why the crime of aggression matters because it's far, far easier to prove. Um, it's kind of returned to popularity almost because of the war in Ukraine where... Uh, crimes against humanity, uh, genocide, uh, war crimes will be difficult to tie to the leaders high up, high up the the chain. Um, but a war of aggression is is very very simple. Um, and the reason, the other reason it matters is that um, normally with these things, uh, you know, it takes a decade or more for someone to face justice if if they ever do. Um, because of course, if they if the regime never falls, you can't put them on trial. People can't you can't go on trial at the International Criminal Court in The Hague in absentia. You have to be there. You have to be handed over. And so the question is, how how do we accelerate that process? How do we make sure that uh, Vladimir Putin faces justice? Um, now, there's there's debate on this. Um, some people, uh, you know, Jeffrey Robertson, another kind of um, high-profile human rights barrister, sort of says, well, you know, you'll have to wait. Um, the Russian regime, the Russian economy is, is unstable and, and you just have to wait. And, you know, Putin is young enough that, you know, 10 years isn't that long and maybe we'll get him. Um, others like Philippe Sands argue that you can accelerate the process. And again, they point to Nuremberg. They point to the idea that once things start to look bad, um, if you already have a list of indictments, a list of people of interest, as, they, as the, the Polish government in exile put together in 1944, um, you can concentrate minds in the inner circle. Um, and the example he points to is Karl Wolf, who was the SS general, who by the end of the war was in charge of um, German forces in Italy. Uh, he actually began to negotiate the surrender of those forces well before the war was open. Uh, over, sorry, several several uh, weeks before. Um, and later on, he wasn't put on trial at Nuremberg because he uh, agreed to testify against um, his fellow Nazis. Um, and a lot of the information that he gave ended up being uh, crucial to the, to the prosecution. But the idea there is that um, you can put pressure on um, people around Putin to kind of help tip the balance, the, the, you know, the, uh, the, the calculation of whether it's time to topple him um, by... Uh, by putting these indictments in place. Um, and then the, the other element that you've got in there as well is, and this is the comparison with Serbia after the, um, after the Balkan Wars, is that one of the really big questions is when do you lift sanctions? Um, you know, lots of people are fond of coating Sun Tzu and, you know, building a golden bridge for your enemy to retreat on. Um, but if we do want to bring Putin, uh, Shoigu and others to justice, um, you have to create some kind of incentive for them to be handed over eventually. Um, now, what happened with Serbia is that it did take, um, you know, the best part of a decade, uh, if not longer, for a lot of the worst criminals, um, Slobodan Milosevic, uh, Radovan Karadzic, to, to be handed over, and Radko Madic. But they were because uh, Serbia, although it occupies this strange position, sort of Russian ally, does want to be part of the international community, does want to trade with Europe, does eventually at some point want to be a European Union member. And the way that they were made to hand over these criminals that, you know, the world knew were in hiding in Serbia was by saying, well, you can't be a member of the international community. You can't 
have these trade deals, you can't uh, apply for European Union membership uh, unless and until you hand these guys over. I think there's something really interesting to be said about the Nuremberg model as one that may be used for Putin and his generals in the future. Um, One of the great conundrums of Nuremberg and indeed following the defeat of the Nazis at the end of the Second World War was around this question of, of culpability and guilt collectively. What I mean by that is effectively a decision was made by the Allies, and this was something that went very much against what Stalin wanted to do, which was effectively to punish the entire German state and German people. A decision was made, particularly by the Americans and the British, to say that uh, the Nazi party was a criminal element within a state and that they seized power illegally and committed crimes illegally, and in a sense, in a sense, misled a people. Um, and I think that that will probably be the trajectory that in any future trial the West would lean towards or the world would lean towards, because, of course, how on earth can you measure the culpability of the Russian people in this? It's very, very difficult to do so in a legal sense. Of course, things were slightly different in the 1940s and 50s because given the context of the Cold War or the growing Cold War at the time, it was believed that if the entire German people were blamed, as in the same way that they had been after Versailles, um, sorry, after the First World War at Versailles, um, that this would lead the German people down into this sense of feeling betrayed and might eventually uh, lead them to perhaps turning communist rather than being more pro-West. And so that's why the Marshall Plan happened, funneling all this money and not blaming the German people for the war. So that's interesting. And and I think, as I say, I think that might be something that, that is thought about in the context of any future trial. Just the other thing I'd say, touching on Daniel's point about... Um, this idea of of who is culpable for war crimes and when you don't have written orders from generals and from the leadership. He mentions the Second World War and obviously Hitler being the most famous example of there is no written order from Hitler that has yet been discovered that lays out a, uh, you know, an, an, an ambition to commit the Holocaust. Um, and this is one of the great sort of problems that, that historians have and debate is, is why this doesn't exist. And, and one of the most interesting conjectures that's been put forward is by Ian Kershaw in, uh, in his very famous dual biography of Hitler, where he talks about this idea of working towards the Fuhrer. So his idea was that essentially... Yes, Hitler wanted to commit the heinous crimes that he did uh, during the war, and this was fed into some of his subordinates, who were then effectively given free reign in order to carry out those orders. And it may be that we are seeing similar here in in Ukraine, that it is not as if Putin is saying, you know, um, kill so-and-so number of people in Bucha, do this in Mariupol, etc. But free reign is being given to generals and to men, commanders on the ground, uh, to, to do what is necessary, and I, I put necessary in inverted commas, in order to achieve certain strategic goals. So I think this idea of working towards the Fuhrer or working towards the dictator, rather than it all coming from top down, um, I think is very relevant to this and will be something, again, that's, that, that, that will be discussed in one hopes a future trial. I think on, on that note, it's also important to, to look at the culture of the Russian, formerly Soviet army. Um, you know, we've seen obviously this stuff in, in Syria and in, um, and in uh, Chechnya, um, which both obviously took place under Putin's leadership, but actually the kind of war crimes that the um, Russians appear to be committing, um, they were doing in Afghanistan before that. 
um, and to an extent uh, they did in, in Europe, in, in Hungary and Czechoslovakia, and certainly the Red Army in, in the Second World War um, committed uh, numerous, numerous um, appalling war crimes. So, you know, to an extent you can look at, uh, well, what's going on under Putin that's, that's encouraging these things, you know, what kind of orders did he give in Chechnya? But equally, uh, there is the culture of the, Red Ar- of the um, Russian army, which, which predates that. Um, and which was in place well before, um, you know, Putin was in power. And obviously he's done nothing to change that, to remove that. Um, but it's it's a long-standing uh, cultural bent within the army, I think. Thank you, Francis. And thank you, Daniel, for that. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Um, I think we're running out of time. So could we have your final thoughts um, for what to look for in the next few days or the next few weeks? Um, Francis, do you want to go first? Yes, just um, touching on that last point that Daniel was making about the atrocities committed by the Russian army, I would point everybody to read um, Daniel Sheridan, who's of course been on this podcast, um, her latest dispatch from Ukraine. Uh, It's called I Stopped My Wife from Opening Mutilated Daughter's Coffin to Protect Her from Even More Grief. And it is truly a harrowing piece to read. I won't repeat some of the things on this podcast because I think it's one of those things that people should should read for themselves if they choose to um, but it's basically the story of two parents burying their 23 year old daughter who was found um, not only tortured but much worse than that um, before she was killed and um, the reason I point to it is just so that people can understand what is happening at present and just the sheer brutality if as if it wasn't already underlined enough but i'd also just wanted to flag it because of an interesting quote um, from these poor parents who were asked by daniel what they thought of the russians now the reason that's significant here is that they were originally part of Donetsk, lived in Donetsk and the Donetsk region Um, which, uh, of course, is more seen as being more sympathetic to to Russia. At least some of the people are more Russian-speaking, more Russian-leaning. Again, that's not me playing to Kremlin propaganda. That's just sort of a cultural propensity because they're a bit closer to the East. Um, But they were asked to say what they thought of the Russians, and this is a quote. Um, We are from the Donetsk region, where almost all people speak Russian, but I hate the Russians because they killed a Russian-speaking girl. Now I am ashamed to speak Russian because I hate the Russian world. If that is emblematic, as I think it is, of what is happening in many areas of Ukraine that may once have seen themselves remotely as connected with Russia, then this just speaks to the huge miscalculation that Putin has made in this war, turning people against his state. But not only that, I think it speaks to the problems he would have even in the situation of some sort of victory, in inverted commas. How on earth can you control people when they've experienced this, this horror? Um, I don't think it is possible. And I think that actually the brutality of this war is only underlining the sense in which Putin cannot be allowed, allowed to win. Thank you, Francis. Um, Louis, Louis Ashworth, from an economics perspective, what should we be looking out for in the next few days? What are, what are your final thoughts? Well, listen, I mean, anything I say, obviously, is going to feel like it, it pales in some ways com- compared to sort of the things that are being discussed there. And I would also encourage everyone to, to go read that. Um, obviously, one of the big questions we have right now on a sort of macro level is, uh, is the idea of uh, a Russian default uh, Russia's looking extremely likely to default on its foreign debts, which will be the first time it's done so since the aftermath of the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, what that will do to Russia's standing 
it's difficult to say. It's it's a it's an it's an important and significant symbolic thing if Russia were to default on its foreign debts. But you have to consider that at this stage, there's not much more that Russia could do to make itself a, a pariah internationally, at least from a Western perspective. So it's one of those things that when it happens, it will be symbolic. Uh, but I think at this point, it's it's hard to say that any more damage can be can be done to Russia's reputation as a as a financial actor uh, in terms of in terms of how, how it's how it's viewed from the West. Questions, obviously, about its relationship with China and India in particular are are interesting and uh, still sort of developing. But um, that that will be a, a, an important point, but maybe not a point that we should overstate the importance of. I think. Thank you very much, Louis. Uh, Daniel Kapura, would you like the final words? Yeah, I think in terms of uh, what to look out for, I mean, the announcement yesterday of another $800 million um, of funding from the United States is is, um, crucial and very interesting because it involves heavy weaponry. Uh, You know, the West was expecting to have to fund an insurgency somewhat like the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. And so the weapons they were providing, things like javelins and envons and things, were all about ambushes and and being light and mobile. And the war really is going to change in in characteristics. And, And I think, you know, looking at the historical comparison here, um, you know, there's lots of historians who say that, that Hitler lost the moment that he invaded the Soviet Union because Germany just did not have the industrial capacity to match up to the Soviet Union and its kind of endless supply of, of men and material. Um, and I think the important thing here is that Ukraine on its own um, would not be able to stand up to even the kind of diminished Russia that you have today unless it has um, the supplies of, of NATO and the West. And so the question is how quickly can uh, those um, that heavy material, the kind of howitzers, self-propelled artillery, armoured personnel carriers, tanks, things be got to Ukraine. And this isn't just a question of logistics, of, of putting things on planes, putting them on boats, whatever it is. It's also a question of, of politics and um, getting these things kind of signed off by parliaments, by Congress, by chancellors, whoever it may be. Um, and I think that more than anything will really kind of determine uh, the next few weeks of this war. Hi, everyone. Just a quick note from me that Friday the 15th and Monday the 18th of April are bank holiday days in the UK, so we won't be going live on Twitter. Tomorrow, we have a special episode of Ukraine The Latest, where I talk to Danielle Sheridan and her Ukrainian translator Irena about reporting on the ground and life as a journalist in the war zone, so do listen to that. After that episode, we'll be back on Tuesday the 19th. If you celebrate, have a wonderful Easter. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.